0: You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. You would take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, we find ourselves in verse 18. So if you would stand with me as we we honor the, the reading of Scripture together. But, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. And Lord, I thank you for your word. Your word is is truth. It is sustenance to a a hungry soul. It's it's so good to to have your word. To to think about the fact that the God of the universe has has taken and, and spoken to us through Pages of scripture. Lord, we pray that, that this morning, as your word is is preached, is proclaimed, is, is heralded. Lord, we ask that that it would be you that speaks. That your spirit would would do something amazing in our, in our midst, that we would hear. Christ speaking into our heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. God the Father, you would be exalted. Lord, we pray that that if there are those here this morning who who don't know you, have unconfessed sin, who are making excuses, Lord, I pray that you would speak into that this morning. Soften our hearts, convict us, point us toward the gospel in Jesus Christ, that we might forsake our sin and embrace the, the truth of, of what you've done for us, and that we might be able to, to move on in, in power and in strength and the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that you would do this this morning and, and even beyond what we could ask or think. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Here's here's a fact that we don't like to, to hear, and that is that we are people that make excuses and we are good at it. And when I say we, I'm including myself, but it would be equally correct for me to look at all of you and say you are people that make excuses and you're good at it, just as I am. We make excuses for ourselves when we fail to complete a task. We point the finger at a, another and, and say, yes, I, I didn't do that certain thing, but because of, of so-and-so, uh, I failed. wasn't wasn't all my fault. Somebody else's fault. Students hardly ever, in my experience, don't come with an excuse when they don't get their homework finished on time. They say something like, I forgot, or I didn't have enough time, or the old classic, my dog ate it. When young people fail, their parents often make excuses for them. I would suggest that we do this as parents because we recognize that Our part and responsibility is is for our child and and their failure then reflects negatively on us so we don't want people to see them as, as a failure so we make excuses for them. We make excuses to deflect from our own inadequacies, from our own incompetence. We want to be seen as better in a certain area and our failure has made us look poorly so we turn And we throw somebody or something under the bus, like the poor old dog. Of course, this isn't only parents and students make excuses. It's business owners. It's their employees. It's farmers. It's wives. It's husbands. It's their children, their friends, whether they're single or dating or married. It's the ones who work for minimum age, the people who are millionaires. It's everybody from the panhandler to the president of the United States and everybody in between. We all make excuses. Isn't this why the gospel is so counterintuitive? The law confronts us with our sin. And when confronted with our sin, our tendency then is to make excuses. There's so many people who do not embrace the glorious richness as a gospel because they're sticking with excuses. Yes, the Bible condemns this behavior. It's not a a right behavior. It's it's worry. You know, I I know. um, But there's so many people who are so much worse. They do so much things that are worse. And and by the way, I, I do this because I can't help it because, and we list the excuses. This is how it was in the garden, and not much really has changed. Adam and Eve understood full well that there was a commandment of God, and they violated it. When questioned, Adam pointed to the woman. Woman points to the serpent. They both point to the serpent. So the law speaks to our human condition. It shows us our our faults in the light of the glorious command of our God that are based on the nature of God. And this should drive us to the gospel and in that we admit, yes, we're guilty. Yes, we bear the, the full responsibility for our actions. The wages of sin is just condemnation. For God is just, and that means he, he does, must do what is right, and that is punish the rebellion that is in his kingdom. But often when confronted with our guilt, In the law of God, we deflect. We make excuses and miss the greatness of the gospel. We miss the the, the greatness of the the rest that is available to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Let me make something else very clear. That is, it's not only non-Christians that make these kinds of excuses. It's not only non-Christians who miss the glorious and the greatness of the gospel in their life because of the excuses they make. We as Christians, we're we're prone to excuses, aren't we? And often we make excuses for our sinful actions and attitudes, and we miss the the rest that is available to us in in Jesus Christ. We've we've said this a number of times, and I'll say it again, that the, the Christian life is to be characterized by faith and repentance. And get this, that the the person whose life is characterized this way is not an excuse maker. Your life can't be characterized by faith and repentance and you be an excuse maker. These people own up to their sin. They turn to Jesus, who lived the life of, of perfect obedience that they couldn't. It was perfect where they failed. And they recognize what Jesus has done and they trust in him. They place their faith in him and they, they turn from their sin because they've, they've admitted that it's wrong. And in that, there is tremendous rest and peace. This is why Jesus said that we are to come to him with people with, with heavy burdens to find rest. We, we lay them down. We don't make excuses for them. Now, why do I bring all of this up at the onset? It's because today our text is about excuses. If, if you remember, this section, which is Romans 9 through 11, starts off with Paul expressing a deep anguish in his soul over the physical nation of Israel who are unbelieving. And then Paul brings up the question. That he has gotten thus far. And that is, has God's purpose then in relation to the nation of Israel failed? Has God's word failed? Because God seemed to to promise all of these blessings toward Israel. And now Israel is unbelieving. And Paul, you're saying that they are destined to a, a devil's hell. If they do not believe, then does this mean that God's word has failed? People are asking this question because that's how things have seemed, because few Jews are responding to the gospel. So that's the question that Paul is undertaking in Romans 9 through 11. Several weeks ago now, we said that this section, Romans 9 through 11, can really be divided into seven different sections or seven different uh, ways in which Paul is answering that one question. I'm not going to take time and go through all of that, all seven of them, but in Romans 9.30 through chapter 10, so basically this one chapter, this section that we are in and have been in for several weeks now, the overall point that Paul is making is that the failure of the Jews to believe was their own fault, not God's. If anybody's to blame here, not God. It's it's, it's the Jews. They they didn't believe. They they heard the message. They They dismissed it. Now, some are saying, well, perhaps it isn't the Jews' fault, though. Perhaps it isn't God's fault. Perhaps it isn't the Jews' fault. Perhaps it's nobody's fault. Have we considered this, that there's actually no one to blame here? Think about this. In Romans 9 and 10, specifically, Paul has really tackled some complex doctrines. We, we spent time there, right? Election, reprobation, free will, human responsibility, grace, how the gospel comes to those who need it. And, and now, in the midst of all of this, this theology lecture, so to speak, imagine if someone were to raise their hand and say something like, well, Paul, this is this is all fine and good, but but is it isn't really necessary to go into all of this theological detail, all this intricate detail about words that we have trouble pronouncing and ideas that that are difficult for us to grasp and define? I mean, is it really that? Is it really necessary? Because if we're honest, I mean, you and I are honest. Sitting through a series in Romans 9, I'm sure some of us were kind of at that point, right? We kind of wanted to raise our hand and say, is it really necessary to go into all this detail? But here, the one that raises their hand goes on and says, isn't it just simpler to say, I mean, couldn't we just say, instead of bypass bypass all this theological jargon, All these doctrines, isn't it just simpler to say that the Jews failed to believe because they haven't heard the gospel? Or, if they heard it, perhaps they didn't understand it. Theologians just seem to make things more complicated than they really are. And really, what this person is doing is making excuses for them, is making excuses for the unbelief of Israel. You get that? Perhaps it's not really their fault. They haven't heard it. They don't understand it. I mean, no, not wonder. I mean, why are we going into why are we talking about all this stuff? I would guess that Paul got accused of being one of those theologian types that made things more complicated than they needed to be from time to time. We know this from his writing, that he was a smart dude. We know this from the writings of others in the New Testament that appealed to Paul and said, Paul is smart. It's, it's hard even to understand what he's saying. In fact, other people that read Paul twist his words around because he is so smart. And I would guess that someone did raise their hand from time to time during Paul's teaching and ask those questions or make those excuses. I would guess that that's why these two excuses are in the text here is because it's not new to Paul. He's gotten these before so he's putting them out there to put an end to them in the church of Rome. So let's just take, take those excuses one at a time. Look at verse 18 with me. But, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out into all the earth and the words to the ends of the world. Now, It's important to notice what Paul is doing here. He he could have just said, I know they have heard because I told them and others have told them. If Paul would have said that, there would have been really no problem. It would have been his testimony. I think the excuse still could have stood. Well, you couldn't have told every. I mean... He told a small segment of people. I mean, does the does it really does, does the people really know? But but instead of pe- appealing to his own word, his own testimony, which would be, be more subjective as to who heard, who was responsible, and all of that, he turns his attention to Psalm nineteen, verse four, and quotes that. That's that's what he quotes here. Psalm nineteen, four. Now we know Psalm nineteen, right? It's famous. The heavens declare the glory of God. The first part is about general revelation. The second part is about God's word. It's about the scriptures. Now, there's a couple problems here with Paul's quote, or apparent problems with that quote, at least from our perspective. Paul is quoting from the first part of Psalm 19. Okay. Context in Romans 10 is the gospel, right? The excuse is perhaps they have not heard the gospel. With me? He's quoting from Psalm 19 verse 4, which is talking about general revelation, not the gospel. Parent problem. So the context in Psalm 19 verse 4 is about general revelation. Now, just to make sure we're on the same page, general revelation is not the gospel. It can't be the gospel. It's not. It's creation. It's the handiwork of God that everyone sees. Christians, non-Christians alike. It's a sunset. General revelation cannot save anyone. With me? But, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, where he talks about this, It leaves everyone with no excuses before God. You've seen general revelation. You know there is a God because in it, his invisible attributes, his divine nature, all of this is clearly seen so that people are without excuse. Romans 1. So the text in Psalm 19 is not referring to the gospel. But, in verse 18 of Romans 10, it seems to be talking about the gospel. So, some, perhaps most, would suggest that what Paul is doing here is just borrowing the words of Psalm 19 to make his point without intending to say that the psalm is teaching the gospel. He's just borrowing the words of that psalm, applying it however he wants to. He's applying it to the gospel when it's not really talking about the gospel Ah, uh, that makes me cringe. Charles Hodge. Uh, love Charles Hodge. He takes this view. Uh, he says, Paul simply uses scriptural language to express his own ideas, as is done involuntarily, almost by every preacher in every sermon. Uh, not only not only is Hodge a great hero of mine, takes this view, but so does James Boyce. I quote James Boyce all the time. I love James Boyce. He takes this view. Um not going to quote him, but, but he says basically the same thing. Uh, my problem is that even though preachers may do this involuntarily, take scriptures and kind of quote them loosely to capture their own ideas, it, it doesn't make that okay in every instance. Teachers, preachers, even Paul do not have the authority to take scripture and use it however they want to. Divine author had an intended meaning, right? So how do we deal with this? Well, I would suggest that the simplest explanation here is the correct one. Uh, This is a position advocated by John Calvin, and I'm sure others. And that is that Paul is making a reference here to general revelation. When he quotes Psalm 19, and we've said this in, in the book of Romans so far, and specifically chapter 10, that when Paul quotes something, he's quoting it for a reason. I mean, he could have picked a host of texts, but he's quoting this particular point. And I believe there's no difference here. Calvin says this. He says, I then take this quotation according to the proper and genuine meaning of the prophet. Which means Paul's saying what the divine author is intending to say. So that the argument will be something of this kind. God has already, from the beginning, manifested his divinity to the Gentiles. Although not by the preaching of men, But by what? General revelation. Yet by the testimony of his creatures. For through the gospel, then was silent among them, yet the whole workmanship of heaven and earth did speak and make known its author by its preaching. Okay, Calvin's point here is a good one. And that is that we know from Romans chapter 1, Right? That Paul, he says the whole world is left without excuse before God. The whole world. Every individual person. Right? Do you see how this is putting the excuse to rest? Every person is without excuse before God. Why? Because God has revealed himself to every creature under heaven and left them without excuse. God's invisible attributes, his divine nature, are so clearly seen in his creative handiwork that no one is with an an excuse before God. In one sense, the Gentiles have heard, not the gospel, but the greatness of God that was to point them to the gospel. But it was the Jews that had specific revelation from God. See what he's doing here by quoting this? He's pointing out, All the Gentiles have heard. All the Gentiles are without excuse. How much more then the Jews who have specific revelation from God, how much more do they have God's word? And the first verses of Romans 9 make it clear. When Paul speaks about how God used the nation to bring about the Messiah, for for all of Old Testament history, God interacted personally with that nation. How in the world... Could one then suggest that the Jews have not heard? I mean, it's a stupid excuse. I think that's kind of his point here. How could, how can you stand up and say that the Jews have an excuse before God that they have not heard?
1: Everyone has
0: heard. Everyone knows. This was Romans one. Don't bring it up in Romans 10. We've already dealt with this. I said there were a couple apparent problems. That was the first. The second problem really only exists if we opt for the first option to the first problem. So if we say that Paul is just using this text to speak of the gospel when it really isn't speaking of the gospel, then there's another problem that comes up. And that is... The everyone part. Has everyone really heard the gospel? I mean, general revelation goes out to everyone and everyone's left without excuse before God. But has everyone really heard the gospel? Do you see the problem? If the second half of verse 18, the the quote is actually speaking of the gospel, even though Psalm 19 isn't, then we have a problem. That the gospel has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the earth. Because Paul's taking that and applying it to the gospel, remember, in the first issue. Of course, we know this isn't true. There are still people in our world that haven't heard the gospel. God is still speaking to them. James Boyce handles this problem by suggesting, and he's right here, by suggesting that Paul is just speaking representatively. And well, to to be fair... Paul does speak this way in other places, such as in Colossians 1.23, where he says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel in which you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. I would suggest that these two texts are very different. The Romans 10 text and the Colossians 1 text. Um, in Colossians 1, Paul is saying that the message of the gospel is spreading to all places. That's clearly the intent of what he's saying there. His intention clearly isn't to indicate each individual person under creation has heard this. He's, he's saying that the, the gospel has gone out everywhere. But in Romans ten eighteen, that's not the, the context. This isn't, is it, this isn't a problem if we understand the verse speaking about general revelation. And meaning what it was intended to mean in Psalm 19.4. Clearly, Paul is saying here that it's foolish to believe that the Jews have not heard. If the Gentiles are without excuse before God, how much more then did God give the Jews his revelation? The point is, it's really no excuse at all. In fact... Um, As we said, this, this excuse was put to rest in the first chapter of Romans. The second excuse is, uh, in in these verses is this. Well, okay. So they've heard the gospel. Perhaps they didn't understand it. Now, Paul's quotation here, in 19 and 20 comes from both Moses in Deuteronomy 32, 21 and Isaiah 65, 1 and 2. Let's just look at that excuse for a moment. Read it. But I asked, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a, a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Sometimes this is just simply taken to mean that the Jews understood the gospel when it was preached to them uh, because the Old Testament writers prophesied they would. It's a pretty simple explanation. Uh, Old Testament prophets like uh, Moses and Isaiah who are quoted here. Uh, I agree with James Boyce here that uh, this most likely... Um, is not the best interpretation. Um, the best interpretation here is that the Jews understood the gospel because they were provoked to jealousy when the Gentiles, who they had disdain for, believed it. Does that make sense? The Jews understood the gospel, we know that, because they were so provoked to jealousy when the Gentiles, who they had disdain for, believed it. See how this works. If the Jews didn't understand the gospel and they didn't understand the gospel message, if the message was was lost on them, then why would have they cared so much if the Gentiles believed or they didn't? believe? Why would they care if they didn't understand the gospel? The fact is they had an extremely emotional reaction to the gospel when it was proclaimed among the Gentiles and even the Jews. And doesn't this illustrate that they understood it and just rejected it then? Of course it does. The Jews, like Paul before his conversion, he hated the gospel. Why? Because he understood it. He rejected it. He realized that this gospel is going to run all over the place and it's going to wreak havoc on our system of belief. The fact is the Jews believed the Gentiles to be a people who were not a nation, meaning that they were not special in the sight of God as they were, right? They're comparing. Jews, not they're not a nation. We're the nation of of God. We're we're the nation of of priests and and people that, that God loves and respects, but these people are not a nation and the gospel is being proclaimed to them and they're coming to faith. If the gospel were true, this would put the Jews' privileged position before God in jeopardy. Does that make sense? The Jews also believed the Gentiles to be a people with no understanding. Jews believed that despite the Gentiles' vast learning, that they were spiritual pagans. And of course, it was true. They weren't atheists. They were false worshipers. And and the Jews, though, believed that they understood, that the the Gentiles understood nothing about God. They didn't have His law. There was no way they could obtain eternal life. No spiritual understanding. We have the spiritual understanding. So Jews coming to faith, or Gentiles coming to faith, would have greatly offended the Jews because they were seen as, as ignorant, too ignorant to embrace any kind of Gospel and believe they had eternal life. It's no wonder the Jews had a reaction like this to the, to the gospel. But not only this, the Jews believed that the Gentiles didn't seek after God. The Jews were the ones seeking after God. They were the ones living in obedience. They were the ones that, that were putting into practice all of the things that, that they learned in, in the scriptures. But the Gentiles, they weren't. (coughs) The Jews kept the ordinances. They checked off all the the religious boxes. They cared about this stuff, but the Gentiles didn't. They didn't seek after God, but yet they found salvation in the gospel? This isn't right. Of course, this ticked off the Jews. Of course it ticked them off. How did it tick them off? Because they understood the gospel. They understood the gospel. They saw the threat of the gospel, and they rejected it. This excuse that the Jews didn't understand the gospel falls flat, though, on its face. If they didn't understand it, why would they react, react so strongly against it? It just doesn't make any sense. They were provoked to jealousy. I mean, this is prophecy from the Old Testament coming true in the pages of Scripture. And we, we read it. We know. And Paul was saying, I mean, look at my own testimony. I mean, if we, we understood this and we hated it. Isn't it interesting that in today's world, many people have much the same reaction toward Christianity? You you would think people would be indifferent toward the gospel, but they're not. And it's because of grace. Grace means that God saves the undeserving. Grace saves the nobodies, the people that are not really good people. In the judgment of others. Grace saves the people who are not important in the sight of some religious elite. Grace saves the the ignorant and those who are not even seeking God. It it is God who reaches out and confronts them in their lostness and, and turns them from what is destroying them to the gloriousness of the gospel in Jesus Christ. This is a message the world hates. The the Jews' reaction in the first century is not different than much of the world's reaction toward Christianity today. If it wasn't, there would not be persecution and there would not be laws that limit religious freedom that are proposed to clearly target Christians in a lot of instances. But the sad case, this is the world that we live in and this is nothing new. We look at other parts of the world and we see what seems like increasing hostility toward Christians, and we are shocked and amazed, and we're so glad that we live in the United States, but the reality, and really any interaction with the news today, we see that religious freedom of Christians and others, mostly Christians, though, is being chipped away at. Now, why can I say mostly Christians? Because there's a hostility that exists against the the gospel. People are offended by the gospel. They're offended by grace. I would suggest that in our country and others as well, let's just speak about our own. Our problem isn't so much that people haven't heard the gospel. We've, we've heard it. It's all over. Paul makes it clear that, that we're all without excuse before God. And really, what was said in the in the of the Jews and their heritage could be said of our country as well in some respect. Our country was founded on on biblical principles, largely by Christians. We see our faith all over the founding documents of the United States. The problem with us isn't that we haven't heard. Some might say, well, perhaps, I, I get what you're saying, but... Perhaps we just don't get it. We don't understand it. I don't think that's the problem either. The problem in our country is that we've heard it. We understand it. We've rejected the grace of God. James Boyce says this way. He says, we've chosen not to bow our stiff, disobedient, obstinate necks to God's gospel. I mean, isn't, isn't that the real problem? The people are just making excuses in one way or the other. Over and over, we're making excuses. But here's the thing with the gospel. That there are those who have heard it, who understand it, who have a visceral reaction to the gospel. People who are stiff-necked, self-righteous like Paul himself was, who wanted to stomp out the gospel in the Christian movement before it ever really got off the ground. But God, in his sovereignty, reached down to him in his sin, showing him his wickedness and his need for a savior. That's the thing with the gospel. Paul abandoned his self-righteousness. He came to God, was freely offered the gospel in Christ Jesus. Paul discovered the glorious grace of Jesus Christ and he became a tremendous champion in the Christian faith. That's the thing with the gospel. The gospel isn't held captive to our excuses. It breaks through them. It's more powerful than our excuses. We don't write excuse makers off. If Paul did that, he would have written everybody off. He wouldn't have went on a single missionary journey. But he did. Several of them. Same places, over and over. Ran out of one town, went to a next, went back. Why? Because he understood the power of the gospel. Changes lives. Breaks through stiff stiff-necked, disobedient, excuse-making people who are destined to hell, who make excuses over and over and over, who are hostile toward the gospel. And Paul confronts them over and over and over again with the gospel. And what happens? God saves some. There are others not great Pharisees like Paul but people who are, who are not a people, they don't have any special spiritual understanding, people that have been, not been seeking after God, people like you and me, that we found God. And the reason for that is the same it's the grace of God reaching out to us in love. We were excuse makers at one time. This is the thing with the gospel. We know that most people have a strong reaction against it, that they hate it, that there's no use for it. They hate us for it. Not because they haven't heard it, not because they don't understand it, not because they don't get it, but because God's grace saves the undeserving, and they think they are deserving. But we don't write these people off. Paul and and Silas, they didn't write the Philippian jailer off. You have one excuse. He was responsible for their pain, their torture, their suffering. Totally undeserved suffering. But when he asked, what should I do to be saved? Their quick response to him was, let me tell you. They didn't say, I don't think there's any hope for you. I mean, look how you've treated God's people. Look at all you've done, yada, yada, yada. They offered him the gospel. They offered him Christ. The book of Acts, as well as church history, is is full of stories like this. The people are going to be killed for their faith, sharing the gospel with the people who are going to kill them on their way, not because they want to get out of death, but because they care about that person. They realize the gospel is bigger than this. As believers, we keep sharing the gospel. We keep offering Christ. And when we do that, people keep coming to faith. A point that Paul has made extremely well. How will they believe if somebody doesn't tell them? And we could go on. If they don't accept it, if they have a strong reaction against it, the next time we find ourselves in a position to share the gospel with them, what do we do? We do it. We share it with them. God saves the stiff-necked, the obstinate, the self-righteous, He saves the weak, the ignorant, people that aren't even seeking God. And our task is to make him known, to offer Christ. Because we've experienced God's grace. We know he's worth it. I wonder what excuses stand in our way of coming to Christ. Of yours. Embracing the gospel. Perhaps you're here this morning and you know that you're not a believer. You're not a Christian. What are those excuses that you have? What's keeping you coming from the faith? What about sharing the gospel with those around us that have embraced it? What excuses are we making? I'm not going to share with that person. They've already heard it. I'm not going to share with that person. They just don't get it. They're just obstinate. They don't get it. They're rebellious. They just don't want it. Do it. So we write them off. Gospel bigger than that. Gospel is huge. God's plan is much bigger than all of us. Just draw your attention to the bulletin. There's a there's a sheet in there. I don't know if you, if you read it. Um, remember the the heading on it. Something about election, but it's referring to, to verse twenty here. Um, that was written by somebody in our church do you know that? Um, you can talk to, to charity about that you can use your name, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um ask permission later after you do it uh, I mean the gospel is huge so much bigger than we are. God uses people that, that make it known, and He takes it, and he, he, t- he takes and saves people that we never could believe that could be saved. We know He's going to do it. We trust He's going to do it. His plan is so much bigger than us, and He's chose to use us in His plan. We were once excuse makers. We still make excuses from time to time. We turn to the gospel, and we share it, God can can save those people. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.